Now, one of the answers, it seems to me, is a guaranteed uh, annual income, a guaranteed minimum income for all people and for all families of our country. Boom. What's up, everyone? Welcome to Simulation. I'm your host, Alan Sakyan. Super excited to be talking about basic income, all of the trials happening around the world, sharing the stories of what's happening and how to best maximize our potential. We have Owen Poindexter joining us on the show. Hello. Hey, great to be here. Thanks for coming on. Really appreciate it. Very grateful that we met when you were introducing Andrew Yang mm -hmm. and in, when he was speaking in San Francisco. And I'm really grateful you wanted to come on the show. Owen's background's awesome. He's done 103 plus episodes of the Basic Income Podcast over the last three years. And he's been featuring representatives, he's been featuring co-founders of companies, union leaders from around the world, people that are actually running all these trials across Europe, across Africa, across Asia, across Latin America, and even in the United States. So we're gonna be unpacking all of those. He also ran for California State Assembly and he has just is just fascinating with sharing these stories and all the links are below to the basic income podcast as well as Owen's website and his Twitter so go and check those out Owen let's start off with this big history perspective on civilization we find ourselves as stewards of earth what is your current take on the state of humanity the state of humanity well I feel like we're in this place right now where we can envision a society in realistic real terms where people by and large are taken care of. You have access to healthcare, you have access to education, you have a basic income perhaps to cover your basic needs. We don't have that now obviously, but we could imagine that happening in the near-ish term in the US. We could imagine that happening in a lot of countries around the world. Eventually we can have that conversation globally. And we can also, you know, I feel necessary to throw in that we can imagine tackling climate change. We're not there, we're, we're you know, a ways away and some of these things are not going in that direction, but there is a lot of very exciting momentum toward creating a society that is actually the one where like when you're a, a kid thinking about what the world should be like, that starts to look like that. You know, it's taken a long time and not everything is going in a positive direction, but we have the tools now to get to a place like that. And so it's, it's a little terrifying, but very exciting. Yeah, one of the huge things that you bring up is this imagination. And you actually had an episode where you were talking about the reset, and we love thinking about this reset. What, how would you update civilization in order to have not had some of the errors that we've had in the past? Like, what would have it looked like to have a, had a basic income throughout to make sure that no people were left behind, that humans were all being able to be maximally flourished? And so when you take this, like, imagination of a child where they have, when they're born and they have health care, they have the basic needs that they need at, on Maslow's hierarchy met, like, what would that do to every single human on the planet? And that's a very beautiful vision that I think that, you know, we are like you said taking incremental steps to get to now you know this the, the importance of this like imagination that you indicate do you do you feel as though the people that you talk to around the world they're slowly moving the ball forward in getting towards that imagination yeah I think so so yeah I mean anyone who's in the basic income space some part of their brain is in that realm of thinking of a better society you know, some are, are very detailed, very policy focused, very like, it, you know, it should be this much, it should come from these sources, not from this, it should, you know, and so on and so forth. And some are just saying that people should be able to kind of do what they want with their lives. Like maybe there should be some obligation or, or incentive to contribute to the larger whole, but 
in a world where we have the resources, we have the ability to distribute those resources um, in a way where people are have a baseline where they're taken care of. You know, we, we can't ensure that you're in a good mood all the time, but we can ensure that you have food, you have housing, you have access to healthcare, and money is this magical thing that is so efficient. I, I can send you money as easily as I can send you an email these days. And so, and, and we've seen, and I'm sure we'll get into this, that when you give people money, they don't, um, they don't just spend it on you know, drugs and alcohol. People have this idea that you know, well, if you just give people free money, they're just gonna drink it away. They're gonna spend it on video games. And you know, some people will, and maybe that's okay. Maybe it's okay that some people, they just wanna smoke pot and play video games. And there's seven billion of us. I think it's okay if a few people are just doing that. Um, I think enough people have this, this social civic mindset that they want to contribute. They want to be part of a society, and you don't need to threaten people with poverty to do that. Mm. Yeah, one of the things that yeah, Ron and I talk about is that uh, one of the reasons why we see poor people is because it's to scare the middle class. To, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 and this is, this is a very serious thing. You don't need to be threatened um, with poverty when you're birthed into this beautiful, abundant world. Um, and like how we get there is one of the major questions. You started listing these you know, really strong like, mental health benefits. We have tons of people that are very excited about, mm -hmm. uh, about being able to contribute at, on a civic engagement level. And even though a small percentage of people will do things that are maybe just you know, hang out and stuff, whatever, that's cool because we have so many people that actually care and want to make it better. And then yeah, now the, the, all the practical questions, you know, how do you figure out how to redistribute, how do you how do you take money? There's all these dividends that we're gonna be talking about. We're gonna be unpacking all these potential funds, all these scenarios of, of basic income that are happening around the world, because there's so many different ways to tackle it. And it's cool because you can actually see different like permutations of how to tackle it happening in countries, and then the best ones will kind of win. The best code of how to tackle it will win. So you started doing, you know, you're born in Brooklyn, mm. and then you moved with your wife for, she was doing law school at Berkeley. Yep. So you guys moved to the Bay Area, yep. and then when you're in the Bay Area, you get involved in these, you know, these, these meetups. Yeah. And you're learning more about basic income, you meet Jim, your co-host of the, of yeah, the, the podcast. podcast. Yeah. yeah, and so tell us about, like, then you get involved in California Assembly, so how did this activism and basic income life start up for you? Yeah, well, I should definitely credit uh, Jim Pugh, my, my co-host on the podcast, and Sandhya Anantharaman, uh, who essentially built the basic income community in the Bay Area. And they were able to do that because there are people like me who had heard of the idea, were interested in the idea, you know, some from the automation perspective, some through fighting poverty, just a lot of different uh, angles that people come at basic income from. But they just said, you know, if you're in, into basic income, come uh, to this time at this place and we'll, we'll talk about it. And uh, so it was a very organic development and they occasionally host uh, what are called create-a-thons. And so that I think was one of the big galvanizing moments for the Bay Area basic income world was uh, they hosted a create-a-thon where uh, people could just come up with different projects. Some were art projects, some were policy projects. I kind of designed on paper uh, ideas around creating a basic income in San Francisco. And, um, and, and through these meetups, you know, one day I said, you know, I've been thinking about starting a basic income podcast. And Jim said, I have been thinking about that too. And, you know, 
not much later, we, we started the show, and because we are the Basic Income Podcast, others have started up. I don't know if any of um, are still going right now, but we've been able to bring in a lot of the big names in the basic income space because it still is, you know, it's getting bigger and bigger all the time, but it's still a, a small enough world that you can be, if you're in Nebraska and you want to start a basic income community there, you can be that person. You can be so-and-so of Nebraska who is the hub of basic income there. Uh, whereas if, you know, if you're fighting for universal health care, you should absolutely do that, but you won't be the only one, which is great. But, um, but yeah, so I got involved in this community. It started to grow and grow. The podcast kind of became this hub of, of my own activism and my own learning about the, the policy and meeting more and more people involved in that world. And what I started to notice is that there's a lot of excitement around the world. You, you talk about basic income and a lot of people are, are into the idea. They've heard of it in the Bay Area, at least a lot of people have heard of it and support it. And then you get up to politicians, the people who could actually make it happen. If our politicians wanted a basic income tomorrow, they could. Um, but they don't want to touch it. There's so many other things they could be talking about, issues that people are familiar with, that know how they feel, and it's not controversial. You don't get all these questions about how you pay for it and what is it and what are people are going to spend it on. And so politicians don't want to explain things. They don't want one of them, a basic income supporter, uh, told me that it was a, an elected official said, if you're explaining, you're losing. And oh. so, and it's a new concept for a lot of people, uh, even here in San Francisco. And so that needs to change. If you're explaining, you're winning because right, you can yeah. show the math, show the science, exactly, show the, the trajectory, yeah, your potential. Yeah, and <clears throat> running for office really uh, yeah. exposed me to a lot of that political realm. Um, but so I decided to run for office to be someone who's not afraid to explain, who's not afraid to you know carry the torch for this concept that's. Um, that's big and new and unfamiliar even in, you know, I'm in the East Bay, a uh, very kind of liberal hub of the U.S., but a lot of people hadn't heard of it or were wary of it for a lot of the reasons that people are wary of basic income. And yeah, just on the explaining your losing thing, I got to go to the California Democratic Convention in San Diego in, uh, in 2018. and. Um, you see these very practiced politicians like Gavin Newsom, Antonio Villagrosa, you know, all these people who they are good at politics and they just have a cadence in their voice that means you are going to applaud. You can say things like, like everyone deserves an education. They, they just do. And when they, when they hit do, everyone claps. And it's like, it's like the applause sign lit up. Yeah. And they're not explaining what education is. They're not explaining why that's a good policy. They're not explaining anything, really. They're just hitting a principle. And you're like, I agree with that principle. And they said it in a way that hits me in, on a bodily sense. And you clap and you like that person. And that's what being good at politics is. And you know, for better or worse, that's, that's our system. Um, a system that's held up reasonably well, I would say, you know, over the centuries uh, for all its flaws. And, you know, I'm certainly happy to get into those flaws. But, uh, but it's one where it's difficult to come in with a new idea. It's difficult to be that person who is putting their, their political energy, their political stakes on this idea that people haven't necessarily heard of and they're not sure what they think about it. So I decided I would do a little bit of bushwhacking there. 
Yeah, yeah the, this was also, you know, so interesting that when you came, you were explaining that you had just, you know, interviewed someone in Sri Lanka too that was taking on this, yeah. the, being the universe, the basic income person in, in Sri Lanka. And like you said, it's still such a <clears throat> nascent movement where you could be the person in Nebraska or whatever country in the world or state in the world and, and step up and be that, that, um, that, that leader in that area. Now, <clears throat> you also um, started teaching us about how a lot of the political sphere as you started entering it was a little bit uh, you, the, the, just following some sort of a, a cadence and uh, mm -hmm. kind of like a code of politics that mm -hmm. doesn't necessarily explain, like you said, how are we going to make sure that every child gets an education? What education is a child going to be getting? How can that child be fully actualized? Right? These the further levels of the principle of the top yeah. principle, and so <clears throat> that's very important that that you bring that up because now I hope. You know, more millennials and Gen Z that step into these positions will be focused on those explanations mm -hmm. of how to actually solve um, some of the pressing issues of our time. Now, okay, after 103 of these over the last three years, this, you know, like you said, includes representatives, co founders of big companies, union leaders, all these different people. Um, you know, the three years that you've done here, what have you seen of all of these trials that are happening? We were talking about them as kind of like permutations, mm -hmm. seeing which ones are going to be successful. Is that kind of how you've also been seeing it as different permutations occurring and measuring them, success? Uh, yes and no. I mean, I think a big part of, I mean, well, yes, yes and more, I guess, would be the more accurate one there. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's really important to uh, just see what happens when you give people money in the current context in you know in the US right now in you know there's some in Canada there's some all over the place um, you know I think there's going to be some universals there and some that are very specific to that place in that time so yeah I think these experiments are experiments they're also really good exposure um, the one there's one that just started in Stockton California mm. and that is both an experiment to see what happens um, but also, they're very focused on collecting stories from those people. You know, how did it change your life to get there getting, I believe, $500 a month mm -hmm. that people selected there. And, you know, oh, I, I think those, those stories can really make this make sense to a lot of people where they say, oh, okay, yeah, now, like, now I see that, you know, you, uh, you're kind of making ends meet before, but now with this extra 500 bucks a month, you don't have to think about what you're going to give up when your kids need school supplies or you know, like they're they're you know ripping their clothes and you need like a new set of clothes um, and that's a burden for a lot of people you know for some people they they don't just have a little bit of extra money lying around to you know something breaks and you do you fix it do you get a new one or or do you just not have that thing anymore and what if that thing's really important what if that's your car um, so that, that all percentage is crazy. I think it was something yeah. like um, fifty percent of people in the United States can't afford a five hundred dollar bill. Yeah, yeah, and I feel like movements like these need facts like that. I, I hear that one all the time, and I say it all the time because it's one of these things where it kind of hits you, like, oh, like that's just a problem that needs solving. And sure, things like healthcare, education, jobs programs. There's lots of stuff that we can do to kind of bank shot that policy or that, that problem, but we can also just give people money. And what I, mm. I'd say the, if you're gonna take one key finding from the basic income research we do have already, it's that the 
the issues around poverty are a lack of money. It's not a lack of character. It's not, sometimes it can be a lack of services as well, but to make people, to get people out of poverty, you give them money and then they're not in poverty anymore. There are other routes out. There's, you know, maybe you get a great education and you get the skills you need to get a good job. And sure, that can absolutely happen. Of course, having a little of economic security alongside that certainly makes it easier to survive while you're getting that education or whatever that path is. Um, those happen, there are these rags to riches stories and they're beautiful and wonderful and I think we'd see more of them if we had a basic income. Mm. But also there are people suffering who, they don't need a rags to riches story. They mm. don't need this like brilliant idea where they bust out of their, their poor town where like everyone's struggling. They could also, we could also just take care of those people and figure out the details after that. Yeah, the 50% the potentially of the population that's so, that's so uh, at the edge, just barely keeping their heads afloat, including projects like ours and many others in San Francisco that are trying to be artists or entrepreneurs around the world, just giving them that little bit of breathing room so it's not always a trade-off between like food and supplies for the project or whatever it may be like that. Um, now... Yes, you're you're super you're super on point. Like it just it just seems like the money takes people out of poverty at the same time as meaning or purpose does as well a lot of the time. So it's kind of like has to come a little bit with a meaning or a purpose, something to you know to wake up every morning and be passionate about doing, but also to have your head above above the water with your ability to 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 stay afloat. Will you walk us through like I, when we, when I was researching what you guys were were highlighting? This is everything from um, like the 70s in the United States. I think it was like Denver and Seattle and Indiana were some of the places mm -hmm. that were piloting some of the basic income projects all the way to, you know, Canada. And now it's mm -hmm. Africa, Latin America, it's all over the place. So like yeah. kind of walk us through maybe a little bit of like a history. Sure, yeah. So uh, in the 70s, the basic income movement, it wasn't this like fledgling thing that most people hadn't heard about. In Nixon's re-election campaign, both him and his opponent had basic income plans as part of their platform. And it felt like basic income was going to happen in some form, either a sort of more, there's a conservative end of it where you would cut or get rid of a lot of social programs and just give people cash. Then there is the more sort of liberal side where it would be more like a more generous basic income, probably plus those programs. But that was the debate. It wasn't basic income or not basic income. It was what kind of basic income. and. Uh, but there, there were, you know, some, some concerns came up, uh, some objections from, from various sides. And so after Nixon got reelected, um, we had some basic income trials in the U.S. to sort of see what happens, get some evidence around this. And, you know, in those places you mentioned, and also, um, yeah, in the town of Dauphin in Canada. And, um, and you see a lot of those effects. So a lot of the, the research that eventually came out of that was um, people were, were better educated. Um, they didn't quit their jobs by and large. Uh, the only places where you saw, the only groups uh, that stayed out of the workforce a bit longer were new moms, uh, stayed you know, just taking care of their kids a little bit longer, and um, students, uh, specifically high school students. Um, you also saw things like emergency room visits went down, both for physical and mental issues. Um, domestic violence rates went down, uh, crime rates went down. So it's you start to see all these things as symptoms of poverty that were just addressed by taking care of the poverty part of it. Um, you know, again, not the only thing you need to do to have a thriving, healthy society, but a big, big part of it. One other finding um, 
that was eventually turned out to be a statistical error, but it was initially thought that in places that had a basic income, the divorce rate went skyrocketed. Mm -hmm. and, and that was enough to kill the program. Um, to me, if the divorce rate was going up, that probably means that there are a lot of people in relationships that where they're just there for the financial security and not for the actual relationship, and maybe it's okay, that maybe it's a good thing that those are moving on. Mm. Uh, same thing if people are quitting their jobs because they're getting like a poverty level of, uh, you know, $1,000 a month would be roughly poverty level for, for everyone. Um, if people are quitting their jobs because they're getting $1,000 a month, that probably means they're in a job that was like pretty unhealthy for them in some level. Anyway, the divorce rate finding turned out to not be accurate. It was some statistical error, um, but that was enough to kind of kill the momentum and you know, American politics moved on to other things. Um, and then in the 2000s, we start to see this revival. And some of it's driven by automation, that there are these increasing concerns that you know the whole robots are coming for our jobs thing. There's a lot to unpack there. And I think in some industries, some sectors, yeah, the robots are coming, and in some they're already here, and that's going to be something we have to address, and a basic income, I think, could be part of that. Some people just see it as an anti-poverty measure, that you know, we, we have all these people, half the population can't afford an unexpected expense of $400, and that's a crisis. That means we are, um, those people are suffering, some of those people are going to have an expense of $400, and who knows what happens after that. Uh, some of those people could be the next Einstein or Bill Gates or you know throw you know Jim Henson whoever you want to throw in there, but you know they're they're, they're working at Walmart or they're working or they're not working. They're just doing what they can to make it through the next day, the next week, and they don't have time to or the tools to contemplate um, the cosmos. And yeah, or even ideas. if they are contemplating the cosmos, you know, and then they have to you know they have to put food on the table the next day. So, you know, are they gonna bust out and start their tech company? Maybe, but you know, they'd have a lot better shot if they had a little bit of income security. Um, so the, the movement is rising again, um, especially among young people. I feel like they see it as a big part of what we need in the economy growing forward. And so there's, there's the automation part of it. There's also globalization. You know, now you're competing with your labor for not just people in your town or your city or in your state, but the entire world. Um, and there's also the rise of contract work. So there's a ton of people who have jobs that where they're contract workers because their employers don't want to pay benefits or they've kind of figured, well, we could just have a 10 hour a week contract worker or a four or six months a year contract worker instead of having someone where we employ them and then we have to give them benefits and we have to find them more stuff to do. And we could just kind of turn the volume knob up and down in terms of how much labor we're employing at any given time. Very convenient for an employer. We happen to not have a benefit system that takes care of those people when those, those employers don't need them anymore. Uh, so you, you throw all those factors together and you realize that our safety net has not been updated basically since LBJ. You know, that's not strictly true, but that was the last major revamp we've had. And you start to think, well, maybe we should just take care of people so that employers aren't, you know, they don't have this burden of you know, having to provide healthcare and retirement benefits. That made a ton of sense, you know, in the post-World War II era, where you were gonna stick with your employer for a long time, maybe probably your whole career. And if you lost your job, you could probably find another one in six months. I should caveat that with, we're mostly talking about white men when, when we talk about that. Women were largely out of the workforce, people of color, um, you know, were, you know, discriminated against in any number of ways. But 
for the people the economy was designed for, for who our benefits were designed for, they work well enough. Um, and they haven't been updated as frequently or as thoughtfully as we need to, to actually take care of people and respond to the economy as it is today and to account for the changes that we can't really anticipate. Yeah, that's a very, very beautiful summary because you're explaining this all the way from the 70s and I'm thinking like, okay, this last 50 year period of time and Eric Weinstein's, you know, really, really trying to teach this on an economic level to more people, but you just see GDP just going up and up and up and median male income is just flat. Yeah. And so you're like, where are all of these profits going mm -hmm. that, the, that the United States is now starting to flourish so much? Well, a lot of it's just going into the hands of the shareholders of the companies that are making all of the of, of the money. Meanwhile, the people, the, uh, the middle class, poor people, are the ones that are buying the goods and using the products that are mm -hmm. that are being created. So then, that in 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 you know, there's so many ways to explain how to potentially make this new code deployment. We were talking mm -hmm. about you know a basic income. What about basic assets? Maybe mm -hmm. some of the people that are working at these companies or some of the people that are buying the products or services deserve a tiny little bit of the shareholder value. Sure. And that way they can have some sort of an asset. We were talking about a carbon uh, mm -hmm. The carbon dividend yeah. that's paid out. We're talking about, you know, Alaska has their oil dividend that they've already been paying out. Yeah. About 200 bucks a month is what I saw as like an average. Yeah, it comes out, it's like 100. one to three K a year. So yeah, it kind of, okay. yeah, it goes Yeah, around, something yeah. around that. Yeah. And then there's, um, there's this other thing, the sovereign fund that you were yeah. explaining to me earlier as well. So now let's talk about all of these different um, sure. code deployments. There's a negative income tax and a cash yeah. transfer. Teach us about that. Yeah, so plenty to unpack there. Uh, so there's the basic income idea of so everyone gets, let's say, $1,000 a month just for, for being a person. Um, and that's kind of like what a lot of basic income advocates would think of as sort of the pure version. Then you have something like a negative income tax. And we tax. should explain how to pay for that too. Like, sure, like, yeah. Andrew, like Andrew said, it's yeah. about $2 trillion a year mm -hmm. broken down. There's like $500 billion of that is already in what's paid out in welfare. Then there's yeah. like $800 billion or so at the value added tax yeah. where core companies pay a tax for part of the production process of creating a good. Right, yeah. And then hopefully they don't increase their rates of their yeah. goods so much to cancel that out. Uh-huh. Yeah, and then, yes. Yeah, so, sure. So we could do a little dive there. Um, yeah, and honestly, how you pay for the basic income is obviously one of the major defining factors in what the policy actually is. And you'll get different answers um, based on, on who you ask. The idea I am most excited by right now is the idea of a, a carbon tax, carbon dividend. And that won't be a full basic income. You could get up to like in the low-ish hundreds per person uh, with an aggressive carbon tax. Um, but would really, I mean, this was already a big topic in my head. And so corporations pay so, yeah, the way, for polluting the environment. Sure, I mean, that, yeah. that's, you know, the, the way you might, might do it is you put a fee on carbon extraction. So you're digging oil out of the ground, you're mining coal, um, you pay a certain amount to do that. And maybe the, that mining company, that drilling company, then they might pass that fee along and it might yeah. end up you know, um, having our electricity go up in cost. Right. Yeah. Um, but if you take the, that money, so in, in France, they proposed something like that. And there were protests in the street uh, because, you know, as much as people want to fight climate change, they also want to make ends meet. They don't want their gas prices to go up. Um, if you take that, those funds, that revenue from those oil companies 
and you just distribute them. You, you just say everyone gets this, this amount of a dividend. Um, then that goes from a regressive tax to a progressive tax. And all of a sudden, you're fighting poverty and climate change at the same time, and you haven't spent any money other than the administrative costs of just collecting that money and distributing it. We have the graphic for the citizens climate lobby that you shared with us. Yeah. That we can also show the, the viewers. Yeah. It, <laughs> it's all good. We can throw, throw, the, throw the other one in there. We'll get to that one later for sure. Yeah. Ronnie, um, we'll get to the UBI you one. Want later. the other one? Yeah, yeah, the other oh, one. Let's do it. We got it. Yeah, uh -huh. yeah. So uh, this is proposed by the Citizens Climate Lobby. Yeah, and this is legislation in the U.S. Congress right now. Right now. Bipartisan yeah. Climate Solution, Energy Innovation, and Carbon Dividend Act. This is 763. Bill 763. Yeah. Drive down America's carbon pollution and bring climate change under control. Okay, and then Ron, let's uh, bring us down, scroll us down through this. Okay, so charge a fee on fossil fuels at the source return 100% of net revenue to households as a dividend. This is what you were just explaining. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and then how do the, how do the fossil fuel companies not pass along the extra fee to the electrical companies then? They might. They might, okay. And so, and they, they probably will. Um, you know, at some point the, the market will determine, you know, how, if it's the whole thing or, or part of it. Um, but this has been studied. And so, yeah, let's say gas prices go up, construction costs go up, you know, things that have to be transported a long distance, so those prices go up. Uh, this has been studied and what's been found is that things get better if you are, you know, in the bottom like 80 at least percent pop of the population. Mm. Basically, if you are poor, lower class, middle class, maybe even upper middle class, you're either the same or better. It's so you're going to get 200 bucks maybe a month in uh, in a carbon dividend, mm -hmm. and then your electricity will only go up 50 bucks a month. Something like so that. So that's yeah. the general way that right. it would get better. You're better off. Yeah. And yeah. if you're not better off, you're probably rich, um, and which I'm okay with. And you're not like it's not like you're way worse off if you're rich. You're just like a, a tiny bit. It's like a rounding error for the richest among us. And again, you're fighting climate change and poverty. I, I try to disseminate this policy as much as I possibly can because I think it's it could be um, just something that it, it's it's just kind of a win all around. Like I really don't see any issues with it. Some people say we should have a carbon tax, but uh, we should use the money differently. And you know I, I'm I'm pro carbon tax, however you can get it through. But I think this is a good way to get it through, and you're addressing other problems. Um, and you see the Green New Deal as kind of this other approach of um, this kind of like big public tying together um, economic growth with environmental protection. Mm. And, and I think that's a great idea to, you know, have this massive public works program where, you know, we're installing solar, we're, we're making our trains more efficient, we're making our homes more efficient, you know, all, you know, can go down the list. Um, but I think that's, that's maybe half the equation. The other half, you can just put this pressure on the market. You say, polluting costs more and those costs get distributed to balance that out. And it's, it's elegant, it's simple, and there's, it says bipartisan climate solution because a lot of Republicans say, well, yeah, maybe climate change is an issue, but they don't wanna do all these big programs. Mm -hmm. But this is, this is basically revenue neutral. Um, and it's, it's relying on the market to just kinda hash out you know, what happens when we, when we make energy more expensive to mm -hmm. make it more reflect um, you know, with the, the actual costs it's having on all of our lives. 
Interesting. Now, I mean, this this seems so right, like that that we could figure out how to pass along a, a dividend um, that is that a lot of the shareholders at the major companies that are also polluting the environment for free right now that they can have that carbon tax. Hopefully, the electrical uh, the electricity costs don't get increased in equal amount, so it just voids. The same thing with like the data dividend that um, Gavin Newsom's putting together. Mm-hmm. Like, can we potentially make it that the tech companies that are profiting in the hundreds of billions of dollars, can we somehow make it so that uh, that the that the us we get out a little bit as a dividend from us providing them with our data? And that as long as the cost to use their services don't increase in the same amount that we get a mm-hmm. dividend, that's kind of just like this yeah. big reoccurring thing that's coming that's mm-hmm. coming up. How do we ensure that? Like for me, it's a, a lot of it is about a spe- period of spiritual growth. The job creation here is really important as well. Mm-hmm. Um, the amount of jobs that get created through things. Um, like the the new uh, technological movements, but a lot of it's about the spiritual development. Like if people that are at the tops of these hierarchies that are making some of the most amounts of money, if they're if we go if we help us get through a process of spiritual development and just and just really tying us together with all that is at a deeper level with how we are so interconnected, that then it it almost becomes more of a, we're not just gonna do some top-down force regulation, but it's more like, I want to be a part of the Giving Pledge. I want to be a part of these transitions that we need to make sure that the grandchildren have a planet to to, mm-hmm. to play on and to be creatively flourished and that they don't have issues with when they're birthed into the world. Do you, kind of, do you feel me on that like spiritual development and connection side of things too? I do, I guess, I mean, yeah, I, I, I think that's the ideal, right? That this isn't something where we have to like forcibly take your your resources, your assets. Then it's more of like a we're all in this together. Yeah. If you know, the, it should be that what's what's good for everyone is good for everyone, and that we just both feel that even if it means you can't afford as many yachts as you would like, that you you recognize that this is for the collective, and that is, then and that is just good, and that you feel that. If you're this, you know, rich oligarch or a you know politician who controls a lot of things, that um, that even if yeah, that, that that there might be some nominal personal sacrifices, or maybe not even nominal, that go toward a betterment of the whole. Yes. The other side of that, I would say, is that I don't necessarily want to wait for the spiritual awakening sure. of... Me neither. <laughs> You'll be waiting a long <laughs> time. To, to, yeah. Totally, I feel you there too, yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, they come hand in hand, mm-hmm. helping with the spiritual awakening at the same time yeah. as making moves, making the actual movement that is so needed to eradicate suffering yeah. rather than enabling the purchase of the fifth, sixth yeah. yacht. But you get way more meaning in life from the from helping pass along that Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. to other people. And I'll say that I think it can actually happen in the other direction, that if you are in a society where people are just taken care of and you take that as normal, that you know, if that starts to go away, then you'll feel that loss. And so it's not just that we have to get people on board with this big holistic vision of the world and then make it happen, if you could just kind of sneak it in there sometimes, um, then people will say, oh yeah, like th- this is good, th- this feels right. And the growth can happen that way too. Yeah. 
Okay, so then, you know, there seems to be, like, this is this was one of them, the carbon dividend, data dividend, we unpacked those. There's, you know, the basic income, how we pay for that, you know, a negative income tax, like people that are just not making. Yeah, we could explain money. that one. Yeah, cash transfers, yeah. Yeah, that. so um, the great appeal of the negative income tax is that it basically pays for itself. The idea is that, so let's say you're making a million dollars a year, you have an income tax on that, and that, you know, so government takes a chunk of that, and you know they take a little bit less if you're making 500k, 100k on down. And then at a certain point, instead of you giving the government money, the government gives you money. If and you're it, making like 10,000 a year, the mm, government may give mm, you supplemental income of 10,000 a year from that pool that they withdraw. Right. Yeah. And so it's um, and so as you earn more, then you get less from the government. And once you cross it, at a certain point, you're you're at the even. the break even point, break even point yeah. and uh, yeah, and then above that you're paying into the system. Um, this where, is where would the incentive come to actually get to that break even point of twenty thousand? Like, you know, like, like so, if there's essentially a tax on all income, one way or another, whether you're taking in less or earning less, the more you earn, the you know, the less you get from the government. I mean, um, you know, I assume the same place it, it comes from now, where let's say. Um, if, if we had a negative income tax, yeah, let's use your example of if you're making 10K, you get an additional 10K, 10,000. And if once you're up to $30,000, then you're only bringing in extra $5,000. Okay, so now you're making $35,000 a year. It's better than 20,000. And maybe the financial incentives are not as strong and maybe you, you would adjust the slope of the, and the you know, break even point to find a place where the incentives to make money are where we think they should be, and I, I don't exactly know where that would be. Um, but um, but people want to make more money now. People making $100,000 a year who are getting taxed quite heavily and will get taxed more if they go beyond that, they still want to make more money, most of them. Um, and so, yeah, I, I don't, I'm not currently worried about the incentive issue, uh, I think. Um, we're not talking about levels of basic income not right now that where it's like if you if we're talking about like everyone gets $40,000 a year unconditionally okay yeah then people might say like yeah I'm gonna quit my job because I can just live on that and I'm fine with $40,000 a year at $12,000 a year some people are just gonna coast most people want a bit more than that mm -hmm. and whether that's mm -hmm. a negative income tax or, or sure, just a sure. dividend yeah. interesting yeah um, I also tend to tend to agree that there's like a strong drive for uh, for people to find meaning or purpose in the world, mm -hmm. and that that will then be the incentive for them to go and make things and build things. Yeah. Um, at the same time, we do see quite a lot of of hierarchical dynamics that are so, so slowly but surely over the last fifty years slightly uh, inhibiting people from. Uh, from achieving self-actualization, the resource flows aren't quite there. The um, the the we were just we were just making it really clear that like people at some point um, are just not as better off as their parents yeah. were when they were growing up, and so a lot of these problems can't just be um, pushed off into like laziness, but actual like mm -hmm. like wh how much easier is the climb up in the past than it was now is another way to potentially yeah. phrase that and think about it. How many more people are there on the planet now? Yeah. How much etc. The, these these questions. Um, and then cash transfers and mm -hmm. the sovereign fund, we can... Yeah, sure, let's do sovereign wealth fund. Um, so Alaska's been doing this for uh, over 30 years, almost 40 actually. 
And what they do, it's, this is a convenient example, is they have a whole lot of oil up in Alaska, and that's government land. The, the, the government gives oil companies the rights to drill on that land, and, they, um, and that costs money to the oil companies. And so the oil companies pay the state of Alaska. Alaska puts that in a fund, invests it over a number of years, and then each year, um, they provide a dividend to everyone who lives in Alaska. And it's been historically about one to $3,000 per year. And it's incredibly popular because people like getting money. And uh, there are a lot of, I interviewed uh, on the podcast, um, Bill Wilikowski, who is a representative up there and it's a state senator. And, uh, and he talked about how you've got these very remote villages in Alaska. You, know, you think you know what a remote town looks like. Well, you know, imagine if like, you, you have to take a plane just to get to your, to your town, town of like 100 people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, like getting a, Thanks, a jug of milk will have to, um, you know, requires the same thing. Um, yeah, an extra like $2,000 per year, and that's per person. So if you have a family of four, that's $8,000 a year for a family. That makes a huge difference. Um, so that's the, the Sovereign Wealth Fund idea is you have this fund where it's not directly distributed to everyone. It's not just money in, money out. It's money in, it's invested, and then distributed as a dividend. And not necessarily 100% of it goes toward a dividend. It could go toward other community social projects. Um, but that's, that's the basic concept. And it doesn't have to be your, your oil reserves. It could be a carbon tax. It could be a financial transactions tax. It could be a data dividend. Uh, it could be a land value tax, which is an idea that is mm -hmm. very prominent in the basic income space. That's Zoltan's idea, Zoltan Ishvans? I um, think that's part oh, of yeah, his federal I, land um, dividend. I'm actually not super up on, on what he's proposed, yeah. but um, it's often associated with Henry George, who was a, you know, a thinker of a, a previous time. And, um, and yeah, he, he's often kind of thought of as the, the, the biggest, or like the, the original proponent of the land value tax. Mm. Um, and that's the idea that you, know, you, you own a plot of land, and if you have a mansion on that land, or if it's just you know, nothing, uh, you, get, you get taxed on the value of the land. So in San Francisco, that's gonna be kind of high. In, um, you know, if you go you know, 100 miles south of here, you, you might just be kind of in a random desert in California, that same area of land is not gonna cost you the same amount because um, if you just think about like an undeveloped lot, that's gonna cost like a million dollars in San Francisco, or it's gonna cost like $10,000 in another part of the state or the country. Um, and uh, so, so that's kind of how to think about a land value tax. Um, mm. And that's, you know, you could think of that as a collective asset. Who owns the land? Well, you know, a lot of mostly wealthy people or people who were fortunate enough to, to buy in in cheaper times, um, but who should own the land? Like, well, it, it may not make sense to try to distribute land in some kind of even way where everyone gets the same amount or something like that, or I don't know. Um, but we could kind of acknowledge that we have this very unequal distribution of land based on nothing that really comes from any kind of moral compass. It's just who has money and who is in the right place in the right time and maybe that they should pay into this collective system. Um, and so anyway, you've put all these funds together, you have your, your sovereign wealth fund, you can invest it, you could just invest it essentially in the US economy through index funds and bonds and whatever else. Um, and, uh, and that could grow over time and we could collectively get a dividend from all these, these assets that it feels on some sense we should be collectively owned but doesn't logistically make sense to actually collectively own them. 
Sure, um, sure. So, and then you distribute it out. Interesting. Okay, so so collecting from all of the different assets, from all of the different sort of major um, players that were all contributing to the wealth being grown in those orgs, but then there's not a sort of sovereign fund that can then um, collectively distribute that wealth that we're all putting towards the growth of these assets. Mm-hmm. So now that kind of you know, Ron, we can maybe we can show that other second image that we didn't um, that we haven't gotten to yet. That one that you first pulled up. Um, here, what I was telling you a little bit, you know, before beforehand, that I think you know we can maybe touch on on now, is you know when you look at when I look at something like this, I definitely think of how the the re, the redistribution is at some in some way it it just it's a little bit like it makes sometimes it makes people feel a little uneasy sure. like seeing if they are fi- if people find themselves in this red mm-hmm. on the top left they have maybe like 20 of these marbles stacked right, up. Right, so you're then, losing this many marbles. So you're losing maybe, let's say, mm. seven or so of your marbles, yeah. and then you're redistributing those seven marbles to the poor socioeconomic statuses. Mm-hmm. Now, versus another way that I've kind of been trying to explain it, like this is, looks like a zero-sum game where the red has yeah. to lose marbles to increase the one in the lower SES, versus like the idea of, a, of the 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 red continuing to increase by five or seven marbles but meanwhile the lower SES also increases by five or seven or eight or ten even marbles which mm-hmm. makes it so that they go way out of poverty level meanwhile the red continues to increase as well which makes it so that it's a it's a positive sum game as well as the wealthy uh, uh, realms of, of, of people currently don't get don't become all hesitated and, and like oh, I don't want to lose money because then they're not they're actually continuing to gain so there's ways to make these dividends and distributions happen in a way that it constantly increases the, the, the sum. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And you know, you get a lot of uh, familiar questions once you're in the basic income movement for long enough. And one of them is, is this essentially taking money from the rich and giving it to the poor? Um, and, you know, and certainly a negative income tax is exactly that. Um, and a lot of schemes have, have that basic result. And in terms of a, what distribution looks like, I'm okay with this being step one. What happens after step one? Well, these folks now have more money. So you know, if you're a, a business owner, you know, those are people who now have expendable income that they didn't have, and they're gonna spend money a lot faster than the red column. And so the, the economy will be stimulated you know, to, to an incredible degree. Also, there will be less social spending on things like healthcare, um, or, or you know, a lot of poverty-fighting measures, a lot of you know, you know, social ills like crime issues. Um, those have all been shown to decrease under basic income. It's a similar argument to universal healthcare, where it's like we could have this kind of janky system where if you you can kind of pay in more and get more, but if we just had a single payer, the United States government, um, it's just a more efficient system, and so it's good for everyone. So. You could think of this as step one, where it's like, okay, through the taxation system, through however we do it, um, yeah, the, the the richer chunks take a little, we take a little bit more out of your pie, and everyone gets everyone gets their slice of pie. But the long-term results of that are, yeah, you live in a more prosperous society, you live in a, a happier, cleaner society, you live in a healthier society, you live in a society where you have more potential customers to your business. 
Uh, you have more people with expendable income. You have people getting a check, and you know what day they're getting the check on it, and you can have your car sale or whatever to, um, to, to try to um, bring that added economic activity to you. So I think yeah, even if we are redistributing as step one, steps two through 10 are all about growth for everyone. Yeah, yeah. Now you, you also brought up something super interesting there, which is just all the decreased cost that civilization ha gets to reap the benefits of when people are not uh, just choking trying to get above the line where yeah. the water level is, because then there, are, you know, these all of the expenditures at um, for healthcare decrease. These are the crime rates decrease. These are very interesting things that I think need to be you know studied more and drilled in more. That um, eradicating poverty is, is saving people money, a yeah. lot of money, is saving countries lots of money. Now. Now to play on the on the sovereign fund as well as I want to explain what your thoughts or ask you what your thoughts are here along the lines of like a sovereign fund would take all of that we're contributing to all of these assets but only the shareholders are reaping the benefits so then then redistributing that into a fund that we can then re that we can then get a dividend from mm -hmm. is like a sovereign fund style now a universal basic asset argument, this is kind of what Douglas Rushkoff framed and I thought was very fascinating, mm -hmm. is that, you know, why not just all of the people that are contributing to the, the mm -hmm. growth of these assets, why not just give really small percentages of the assets to the people that are contributing? So instead of just getting a dividend from the data, mm -hmm. why not actually have me own that asset that I'm mm -hmm. already contributing and then getting paid from that? That way it's like an, on an ownership level. What are your thoughts on that asset ownership? Yeah, no, I like the concept a lot. Um, and you know, Rushkoff's sort of thought about this a bit more than I have. But yeah, and I, I feel like there, there's really something there to just, just give everyone that ownership stake. And that's sort of getting into the sovereign wealth fund idea. And I, you know, I started to think about the logistics of it where you know, maybe a, a, just a collective wealth fund would be the easier way to do it so you don't have to like, own your stake of the data dividend and the, your stake of the financial transaction tax and your stake of the carbon tax. I don't know if that's what he's proposing specifically. But, um, but you know, I, I, I like the idea, um, and I'm, I'm certainly a, a fan of the universal, universal basic assets concepts where, where we have, you know, like Wikipedia, I think is kind of mm. a good stock example where it's just this, basically a collective resource. You know, they, they fundraise and whatnot, mm. but, um, but they're a not-for-profit. Mm. And, um, and you can imagine a world where we have like shared vehicles that are just kind of there for, for usage. Um, and you know, like all this stuff that like some of it we have, like public libraries and some of it you could imagine for our modern world. Um, I think that's all great. Um, I don't see any conflict between having sure. that and having something like sure, UBI. Sure. And it seems like now, like I want to ask you about this, you know, we're moving into the age of exponential technology and on automation, artificial intelligence and robotics. And, you know, something that was interesting that Andre Kay just mentioned on our episode yesterday, Managing Director of Silicon Valley Robotics, is that we really need identifiers on the robots. So mm -hmm. as we have a license plate on a car, or on a plane, or on a boat, all these different, right, there's license plates, there's licensing. Yeah. That if we have these identifiers on robots that have licenses, <clears throat> It makes it easier for us to identify potential malevolent actors. Mm -hmm. It makes it easier for us to identify which ones are, which licenses are paying taxes, right? Which robots are paying taxes for the amount of work that they're doing, uh -huh. that kind of stuff. And then it makes it easier to potentially have that be an asset that's shared amongst mm -hmm. people and get dividends potentially from it. Now, with your 
thoughts on the exponential technologies that are, that are occurring as well as um, a lot of the wealth inequality that is, that is occurring. Um, what are your thoughts around like, skills that young people need to, to develop in order to stay relevant in, in the exponential technology age? And obviously we've talked about all of the different styles of, of trying to help with the wealth inequality gap with all the dividends and stuff we've talked about. But give us your thoughts on that exponential technology age and skills we need to develop that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously a big topic right now. And I mean, this isn't going to be new to anyone, but you know, everyone's learning to code now. And, and what's coding? It's, it's your ability to talk to a computer, to get a computer to do what you want to do. And you know, the, the languages that, and the frameworks people are learning right now, who knows if they're even going to be a thing in 10 years. But at least kind of knowing where something now <laughs> is going to be helpful down the road. And you know, we could be seeing a world where if you want to be a, a doctor or an engineer or a receptionist or whatever, you have to have some coding skills. Um, it wouldn't be shocking to me if, if that's the world we're headed toward, where that's just you know not quite as basic as, as reading, but it's getting there. Um, yeah, in terms of, of other skills that you need, I mean, one, one kind of breakdown that you, you hear a lot when people talk about automation taking jobs is if something is um, uh, non-routine, then that's, humans are better at that. If it's anything routine, whether it's mental or physical, mm -hmm. you, you can build a robot to do that, um, whether it's software or hardware, some combo. Mm -hmm. um, and if it's, a, if it's more of a cognitive task, so non-routine cognitive tasks, do we have enough non-routine cognitive tasks to go around? I'm not sure. Are we really headed toward an economy where that's what we'll need humans for and not a whole lot else? I'm also not sure. But, um, and how do you teach all that? I'm also not sure. Um, but I think those at least are the questions that our education system needs to be grappling with. And I, I know that you know, a lot of education is around um, preparing you for the economy. And that makes sense. When you, when you graduate high school or college, you should be ready for some kind of job. All that said, I, I really don't want to throw out the humanities. You know, totally. you know re totally. read your classic literature, read your not classic literature, know your history. All that stuff, even if it, it's not going to help you like, get a, a job, like, it, it helps you be a person. And that's you know, a lot of what education was thought to be for you know, in, in the earlier days when you were just kind of guaranteed to like, move into whatever sort of system you were born into. Um, I think that might be an artifact of a previous system, but it's, it's a valuable one and one that we shouldn't lose track of when we talk about you know, what, what do the kids need to learn right now. Yeah. I like your <clears throat> like your continued emphasis on on understanding how to engage and interact with with code and with computing as well as uh, creativity. S super super important. Um, non routine mm -hmm. tasks, things yeah. that lie outside the crosshairs of software, um, is a very very important. Um, okay, now you know couple couple thoughts on on the way out. You know you're going to be continuing to do episodes on the Basic Income Podcast. Mm -hmm. That's you know where, what else are you thinking about um, in the future of of, of your work and um, mm -hmm. yeah yeah um, well I, I mean I don't know if I'll be doing work around this presidential election, but this is a big moment where we're thinking about big ideas and kind of medium sized ideas uh, about what direction should we be going in right now? This is kind of like a big countrywide public forum where we're talking about this stuff. So I'll be engaged on that um, on some level. Um, 
Um, I'm also, so this is actually news as of a couple days ago, I've just been appointed to the Berkeley Cannabis Commission. So I'm part of now an advisory nice. board that talks to the, um, the city council and makes recommendations. Um, so that'll be, and that's, that's um, previous to UBI, that was sort of a, another galvanizing issue. Legalization totally. um, has, has been a big issue for me. Congrats, that's a really cool position. Yeah, yeah. thank you. Uh, so yeah, that's exciting and a nice way to kind of stay involved in local government after my, you, you run for office, you kind of learn all these like levers and different things that go on in, in local politics and how things actually happen in government. And so it's nice to have found a little spot to continue to be involved. Um, I also write about baseball, so if you're a baseball fan, you can you, you can do. find me out there on, yeah, on uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, it's sort of always been like a childhood thing that suddenly became a job. Um, it's a fun sport. Yeah, yeah, yeah I enjoy it. Um, and you played too? No, no, not this little league. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, though I, you know, still the occasional dream where it's like suddenly I'm on the Mets. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah of it's parallel universe though, and point back. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, in terms of of um, what I do going forward, uh, I feel like climate change and basic income are like the things I think we need to be thinking really hard about right now, and I, you know, hope to be part of those conversations going forward, um, both. You know, in, in the political realm and just wherever we can, we can nudge things forward. Um, I think if we get those things right, you know, that's not everything, but that's, that's a big chunk. That'll be a load off my mind and, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I, I think a load off a lot of other people's. Make it easier for people to have families and kids and continue living yeah. on the planet for sure, for sure, hitting those, tackling those issues. I have a lot of faith in millennials and Gen Z, definitely. Mm -hmm. All right, let's ask a, a couple quick questions on the way out. Yeah. First question. Do you believe we're alone in the cosmos? Mm, probably not. I mean, just, uh, you know, statistically, it's a big cosmos. <laughs> um, you know, given the speed of light and how far away things are, I mean, nothing kind of blows my mind just in like the scale of space, like the size of stars, like even like the size of Jupiter, how uh, yeah. Jupiter has a storm that's been going for 100 years that's bigger than planet Earth. Um, so I don't know if we're ever gonna um, make contact. Uh, or if we have already, or who knows. But, um, but yeah, yeah, there's probably some stuff out there. Probably some of it's a lot smarter than us and has intelligence that we can't even like wrap our minds around. And yeah, who knows where, but it's probably somewhere. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, this is simulation, so we must ask you, are mm. we in a simulation? Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I guess if we are in a simulation, then then what's, what's being simulated? Then who's doing the simulating? Um, I, I do think there's one idea I've thought a lot about is we are, we are these machines that were, you know, whatever you want to call us, that perceive. We have these tools like eyes and ears and touch that, that perceive energy on some level. And then through that, we have human experience. And what, what is the leap between our input of, you know, like light waves and sound waves and, you know, the, you know, the, the electronic fields and whatever that I can feel to, um, to actually just like having this lived experience where I'm walking down the street and seeing stuff. Um, and so, you know, I, I'm sympathetic to the idea that we are all on some level simulating our own lives. Mm -hmm. Are we in a collective simulation? I don't know. <laughs> and I don't know what would make it so that, I mean, this is kind of like the Descartes thing where it's like, I don't know if like a demon is tricking me. I don't know like what's going on, but I know that I've got mental activity. So I am a thing that exists. I think therefore I am. That's, you know, and I don't know how, how you get much further than that in terms of like, defining reality. Um, and if I, 
you know, and what happens if it turns out that we are in a simulation? What's what's the real stuff? Like, uh -huh. you know, am I a computer chip? Am I a snail? Am I the thing that looks like me? But yeah, I don't know. Um, so. Yeah, I guess I have more questions than answers there, <laughs> and I don't know what the answers love will be. But yeah. yeah, love it, love it. That's yeah. a lot of good stuff. Um, very important to unpack that and uh, to continue to probe at the, yeah. the simulation with our scientific hypotheses, try and figure it out. Last question, Owen, what do you believe is the most beautiful thing in the world? Oof, yikes. Um, I think just looking up at the sky at night and seeing the stars and just knowing that that is a 100% universal experience, that every human who has ever lived, everyone who lives is living right now has, has done that and has seen those same stars. Um, and, and, and just that, that we, we've all got this like shared, <laughs> shared perspective on some level that you know, whoever you are, whatever you believe, however you treat people, you know, we, we, we've all done that and we've all maybe appreciated the beauty of that. And that beauty itself is this weird human experience that, you know, maybe, maybe other animals, other life forms experience it as well. But all we can say for sure is that humans experience beauty and I'm not even sure what it's for or why we have that experience, but that everyone does and that you can have these experiences where like you look at a sunset and it's like, everyone thinks this is beautiful, right? And like, mm. why? Like, mm. and, and it doesn't matter why, but it's mm. that just to have that knowledge that we have this, this level of, of shared experience that for some reason we, we just find it meaningful and beautiful and powerful. And, and I don't even really need to know why that is. Oh man, those <laughs> those universal beauties. That's a, that's a really good one. Yeah, yeah. 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 Stars, sunsets. Yes, yeah. yes. Owen, oh, thank you so much for coming on to the show. This thank is you, Alan. This is great. Huge pleasure. Huge yeah. pleasure. Yeah. We love your work very much. We find it to be extremely important to have more of these conversations around the world. So huge thank you for the Basic Income Podcast and all your work and in, in uh, measuring all of these experiments that are happening and teaching about them. Huge thank you to everyone that tuned in. We greatly appreciate you. We'd love to hear your thoughts in the comments below. Let us know uh, what you were thinking, what your thoughts are about basic income. Go and share the messages around with other people about the ways that we can structure society to better maximize people's potential. Huge shout out to Ron Vargas. Thank you very much for producing and directing. We love you very much. Also, go and support the artists and entrepreneurs that you believe in, right? All of Owen's links are below. Go and check out his links. Go and check out the podcast. Subscribe there. Support them if you believe in them. Support Simulation. Our links are below if you believe in us. And go and build the future, everyone. Manifest your dreams into the world. How can we write this code to maximize our potential? We love you so much, and we will see you soon. Thanks, everyone. Peace. Peace.